Welcome to The Sandbox with Justin Peters, connecting you to the ideas and tools to improve your life. Now let's go. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Sandbox. I am your host, Justin Peters, and I want to start today's conversation off with a question. Do you have big dreams? I hope this is a rhetorical question as I expect everyone in my audience to have big dreams. So I know you get it. Starting a business, changing to a healthy diet, being an exceptional partner are all worthwhile aspirations, but those aspirations require a lot of energy. And energy is the focus of my conversation today. Joining me in that conversation is sleep specialist Lee Chambers, and man, does he have an interesting story. At a critical time in his life, with a pregnant wife and a young child already at home, he lost the ability to walk. (laughs) After 11 months of exhausting rehabilitation, he regained mobility. From that, he created Essentialize, which is a life and wellness coaching business. And he dedicated himself to helping other people achieve the healthiest version of their life. In this conversation, Lee will share tips and strategies on how to optimize your sleep. This episode is perfect for those who have big dreams and need a lot of energy to accomplish those. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Lee Chambers. Lee, my man, welcome into the Sandbox. How are you doing? Hey, it's great to be on today, Justin. I'm well, thanks. Ah, that's awesome. And uh, for everybody, if you, if you can't tell, there is a little bit of an accent there. You're, you're from England, correct? Yeah, England, north of England. And yeah, as uh, Justin said previously, sound quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited for our conversation today. It was, a, it, it was a lot of fun getting to do some research on you. And I realized that you have such a big breadth of knowledge. And I figured for this conversation in particular, we're going to talk all things sleep. Before we jump into that, uh, I would love to learn and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about Essentialize and what you do exactly as a well-being consultant. Yeah, so Essentialize is a workplace well-being company. So my position as a well-being consultant is helping people to build awareness of how sleep, mindset, movement, nutrition, and habits all bind together to actually create a compounding spiral upwards in terms of your well-being, your physical health, your mental health, but also how you approach the world, your positivity, your productivity, And I run series of workshops helping people to understand not only how it works on a more, on on a digestible, actionable level, but also ways we can make small changes in each of those areas that actually connect together to build something that allows you to suddenly take off like a rocket, really. Mm. And it's giving you the energy to do the things that you want to do. I do it with individuals as well through a coaching process. So I'll take them through, identify who they want to become, what their actual real goals are underneath the goals that they've quite often set, uh, and then use that to give them the energy to set off on their own personal journey, looking at the limiting beliefs. And in so many ways, it's about interconnecting the fact that your body and mind are really linked in so many different ways. We don't tend to really think about it that much. But when you start to help people empower and encourage them to look at that a bit more, to experiment and start to realize, actually, I can feel better by doing this. So I'm going to do this a bit more. And then you look mm. at something else and realize that. And suddenly, all of a sudden, 
and start waking up in the morning with a lot of energy, vitality for life and going out and actually, you know, living it, attacking it, enjoying themselves. And that is a process of experimentation and failure and being able to catalyze that into different things. But yeah, my main job really to get people living a healthier life without telling them what to do. Hmm. So uh, that, that's interesting. And I think people understand what you do from, from a macro concept. Where, you know, were you always interested in optimizing your own health or is there a story behind how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so it's, it's always something that's been a little bit of interest. But I kind of grew up in, in, a, in a family where I was the first one to go to university. So there's a big push on that and trying to work out what you want to do. And I've always been interested in, in business, in optimizing systems. And I've always had a, you know, a, good, a good grasp of data and statistics. So naturally, that's kind of taken me down an entrepreneurial route more so than the health route. But what I actually did is once I went down my entrepreneurial route, I ended up having the finance and the flexibility to start to learn more about my physiology and about my psychology. And at university, I'd done international business psychology. So looking at lots of different areas from geopolitics to psychology to business, because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But what I knew, I was, uh, I was interested in how things worked, whether it be business, your mind, politics, history, geography, and looking at all those things and that kind of burning desire to understand why does it work and how is it connected is like the kind of like thread that runs through everything that I've done in my life. So I went into the corporate world after university and wanted to be a financial advisor so I could juggle statistics and make people well because the money was looked after. And that was combining the two things that really have been, you know, a passion in my own life. And in so many ways, then setting up that business allowed me to go and study nutrition, study sleep and study strength and conditioning, which then allowed me to have a much deeper understanding of my own physiology. I then decided to go on and do further studies into psychology. So that has then become a driver for what I do today, but the biggest driver was when I became unwell, lost the ability to walk. And at that point, I had to take ownership of my own health and say, right, I can't let this medication get me back on my feet. It's all on me to really utilize this quali these qualifications, the experience in different industries, and start to optimize my own health because my health outcomes are in my hands. Can't suddenly turn the clock back and not have a chronic disease anymore. This is what I've got right now. However, how I react to this, how I attack it back, how I'm proactive in my recovery, that's in my control. So that then became mm. the fuel for me starting to take this in a really kind of serious vein, not just to improve myself, but creating a burning desire to help others with a similar thing. And I've gone through the process of optimizing my own sleep, my own nutrition, my own movement as a tool to come off my medication, which has been dampening my immune system. And I've gone through that process and I experimented more and more to get really what is now an optimal design for my own life. I've realized that would be so powerful for other people. And that really is the root of essentializing what I do today. 
Okay, so you totally grazed by that in the most casual way possi possible. So you lost the ability to walk. Is that what you said? Yep, that's correct. And it was uh, it came it came all of a sudden. I've just turned twenty nine. I was there uh, like, mm, what should I do before I'm thirty? Previous year had been a big year for me. I got married. My son was born. We'd gone on honeymoon. We bought our first house, and you know, from a societal point of view, life was good. Life was rosy, uh, and then all of a sudden, my wrist locked in place one Friday, and I was like, "Whoa, okay, maybe mm. I've just used the computer too much this week." But then, over the coming five days, my knee locked in place, then my shoulder, then my other knee, and I end up in hospital, not able to move, not able to wash myself, or even properly feed myself, and it was a challenging time. My wife was six months pregnant with my daughter, and I was stuck there, gone from fully independent, fully mobile to like, we can't, can't even wipe your own bottom properly. <laughs> and it's like, man, like what, what's happened to me? And I, I kind of went through that process in first, at first I was in shock. I was like, man, what has happened to me? Like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a man, I'm physical. I, I go and do stuff. I do stuff myself and I can't do anything. I've got everyone coming caring for me. And I was like, oh man, then it kind of went to frustration and despair, like, I'm 29, like, this, this ain't fair, I looked after myself, I'm, I'm, I was in good health before this happened, like, why me? And then that, it moved through that again to, like, grief, I was like, I'm going to walk again, I'm not going to be able to run, I'm not going to be able to play sport with my mates, like, what's going to happen? I don't even know. But in that second week, you get a lot of time to reflect when you're stuck in a hospital bed and you can't move, mm. and just realising that, actually, in all those years, I've been grateful for walking once. 29 years, and I never once thought, mm. oh, it's great that I can walk. And that suddenly just, like, melted into my mind, like, whoa, what else are you not grateful for? What about all these people coming helping you live? Yeah, not grateful enough. How about the fact, you know, you grew up in the UK. You've always had food and shelter. You had lots of opportunities, free education, free healthcare. So much life that been given to me and I'm not being grateful for it and that really that's what really flipped the switch between like lying there suffering in pain and worrying about the future to like this is mine like I've been given all this before this happened this has happened to almost wake me up now I'm woke up I'm definitely awake because <laughs> I can't sleep at night because I'm in so much pain. But yeah, now I'm awake and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna take this recovery. It's mine. I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna have the mindset that it's gonna be difficult. It's gonna be challenges, obstacles, sacrifices. But I'm gonna make my recovery a priority. And some days it's gonna be rough. I'm gonna have to have the resilience to get through those times. And I was like, you know what? My, I, I came out of hospital. My daughter was born. And I looked at her and thought, you know what? She's just a baby. She can't do anything for herself. Feels a bit like me in that hospital bed. Couldn't do anything for myself. She can't walk either. But in like a year's time, she'll be walking. And she's not got all those society's expectations. She's like pure. She's just how she is right now. So I'm going to step in that shower and wash everything off from society mm. off me. And start again like she's doing. I'm going to learn to walk. I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to give up if one day I take less steps, if I can stretch my knee less than the day before. I'm just going to realize that I'm gradually moving forward, even on the days that I'm moving back. 
and I can. I'm going to fall over a lot of times like she will. But I was like, by the time she's walking, God damn it, I'm going to be walking as well. Damn. And that why give me the power to drive through those hard times. Give me the willpower to keep going. Like recovery wasn't great. I was struggling. I had some problems with my spine. And I had to go back into physio again to get them sorted out. But after 11 months, I walked a mile on 80. Mm. Stood there by a lamppost holding on to it like, yes. <laughs> Can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. This is it now. If I can do this, what else can I do? Uh. And a few weeks later, my daughter started walking. And I was just like, that's a sign. Like, you can do it. You just got to have that reason to do it. That reason helps you. And I kind of said to myself, like, I'd decided that it didn't matter how I felt. So if I'd, if I'd have done what I felt like, I wouldn't have got up most mornings. I'd just laid there, feel sorry for myself. But actually, I flipped that and said, who am I going to be? I'm going to be someone who's walking. My action was, go and do your exercises. Go and do your rehab. Go and do everything you can. And then I felt good. Instead of doing what so many people do, which is, how do I feel? Not great. My actions don't do it because I can't be bothered because I don't feel good. What's my identity? Well, I've said I'm going to be this, but I've not done what I needed to do. So actually, I feel sad now. And I decided to flip it and put my identity first. I decided to be what I needed to do to have my mobility back instead of wanting to have it before being it. And that's such a big thing to kind of take forth in your mind if you want something you have to become it first and that process you have to go through it and decide what you want like the root of the word decide is in seer to cut off all other options i decided i was walking again there wasn't any oh, i'm going to sit here in a wheelchair option mm. that was gone yes got to make those decisions in life you've got to go all in when you decide to go all in you don't have that nagging doubt in your head. Oh, what if I just, you know, what if I just don't do it today? That's gone. It's not there. Much easier to be 100% in than 98% in. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. That is badass to hear that. I It could make a really interesting thread throughout this conversation if we talk about the uh, moment where you woke up whenever, you know, this the rest of this podcast, we're probably got to be talking about falling asleep here. But it, it's, <laughs> but it, but it is it's it's crazy that you just decided one day, it, and I'm assuming those two weeks laying in the hospital bed actually probably felt like two years, and you had so much time to really decide who you wanted to become, and I just love the parallel that you you mentioned with your daughter. It, it had to feel good as a, a as a competitive person to beat your daughter a week early to start walking, didn't it? Oh yeah, there's definitely elements <laughs> there. Of, uh, you know, I, you like to win because you know with your children they're gonna they're gonna win most of the time against you and it's, it's always that thing like you know you you teach them to beat you <laughs> so, so it, it's, it's beautiful and, and now i still kind of run around the garden with her and we have a laugh and i just know that i i could have given up i could have mm. prolonged my suffering and struggled and then not be the person that i am today and i think my kids almost are more resilient themselves because they've, they've kind of seen it and start to hear bits about my journey. I think a big thing for me was I'd, I'd had challenges before. So I'd had some mental health challenges when I was at university. I struggled with the transition from being a, a kid to becoming an adult. I'd gone off to university, got my freedom, joined loads of clubs, societies. I were having a great time, but then six months in, just started to struggle. 
I was starting to think, who am I as a man struggling to have that self-awareness, that emotional intelligence to dig that bit deeper and find out who I authentically was? I wasn't taking action to carve that. I was trying to think it. When you try and think it, you realise you can't think your way to finding out who you are. You've got to go and learn by failing, by trying new things, by experimenting, by having fun. But I actually took, instead of approaching that, I started to avoid it, pull myself back and started isolate myself. I had to work my way through that, but I was taken home by my parents. I had to go back to university and fight through that. So that's the first time I really took ownership, took ownership of my own self-awareness. And then I came out of university, got a job in corporate finance, and you know I worked hard. It's, you know that if you don't work hard in that period, they're just going to fire you. You're just going to be straight back out into, into, the, uh, into the workforce queue again. But this was during the economic crash in 2008. So after six months, my professional training was taken away. A week later, my job was taken away. And I was like, whoa, what? this doesn't seem fair. And yet I had to sit down, my 21-year-old self, and say, you know what? This is a sign. Go and do it yourself. Do your own qualifications. You can't take that away from you. Go and build your own business. You'll be in control. You'll be able to make that difference. Don't sit there and hope that the company you work for is going to invest in you. Is going to always be able to do what they want to do. Because economics, times, it's like seasons. Good times, summers, bad times, winters. It's going to be times when it's cold. There's times when it's cold, they kick you out into the snow and leave you there. And it's like, well, if you have your own business, at least you've got that control. And at least if you end up in the snow outside, you'll know you tried everything to scrape it off your drive. Yeah, that's cool. And um, I, I, you know, it just kind of illustrates that age old um, advice that when one door closes, another one opens. And sometimes the door closes and you got to turn around and force yourself into another door. And that's super cool to hear some of your story about how you opened up a door for yourself and created, um, you know, your entrepreneur life. It's, it's funny. It seems like, you know, when you decided that you wanted to rehabilitate yourself and you wanted to walk again and it took you 11 months it seemed, and you started experimenting and playing with everything, nutrition and your own uh, physical uh, barriers and mental health and things like that. You became your own first client. Was that, so that was really the moment when Essentialized was formed? Yeah. In so many ways, I kind of looked at it and I was like, in my head, I was like, right. So, so much going on in the world. Actually, most of it is trivial. Like, I don't need most of this stuff. Like, I had lots of possessions because, you know, I was quite a successful entrepreneur. I built up this, I was driving around in a Range Rover in my twenties and I, I, you know, I had a lot of material stuff when I realized when I was like, when I couldn't walk, I was like, what's the point in having a big fancy car? I can't even drive it. I can't mm. even walk. <laughs> so it kind of like, it switched my mindset a bit. And I was like, actually all these things don't matter. What society wants, it's all trivial. There's only a few things that matter. And your physically and mental health, your biggest assets, they're the essential things. It doesn't matter about the about everything else, really. Get your health sorted. You've got the fundamentals in place to actually build the life that you want. 
So let's, let's start, let's jump into some of the things that you've learned through your own experimentation and your experience coaching individual and corporate clients. And also you're, you're very well studied as well. I, I can tell that you spend a lot of time doing some research and picking up papers and understanding what's happening at some of the universities and some of the, the, the clinics around the world and what they're studying. So I, I'm really excited to talk about some of the specifics to give some people some ideas on where they can start working towards sleep optimization. So first, maybe we start with the culture around sleep. And I'm not entirely sure what has happened in the last 40, 50 years or so, but how did we get to a world where, I don't know, maybe it's prideful not to sleep or sleep deprivation is now cool and people brag about, I can function here with only five hours. What are your your initial thoughts on on what happened? (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because obviously we've slept since the beginning of time. And all in the past 200 years of things began to change. So back before the light bulb was invented, we we would sleep for 10 hours a night. And then suddenly we have this light form. I mean, before that we had fire, which fire is a very mellow light length and not a lot of lux that goes into your eyes. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, before the light bulb, if you were milling about in the middle of the night, you were prey, you were, you were in danger. And suddenly we've gone from being able to light up the whole world just in the space of 200 years. By the time the TV was invented, you know, only, only 70 years ago, suddenly it gone from 10 hours to eight hours. Now it's 6.7 hours for an wow. average Western adult. And that's shocking because we've not changed physiologically in that time. But come the time of entertainment and all of a sudden we get, you know, we get to 50 years ago and this idea around productivity, we've only started looking at sleep as a science in the 1940s with the Stanford sleep papers. So it's a baby in terms of science. And we've been looking at surgery for thousands of years, for biology for thousands of years. Sleep, we've been looking at it for 80 years. That's it. We're barely only beginning to grasp the basic concept. But all of a sudden, society had a shift in this kind of really productive period during the 70s and 80s as we came into this you know free market economy this corporate culture of you know big tall male manager leader bold shouted a lot slept for four hours a night because he was a machine and all of a sudden that that came across culture you know why don't you why don't you just lose a few hours of sleep think about how much more you can do you can go and entertain yourself you can go and work some more you can go and do all these amazing flashy light censoring things. And you can, you can go out at night and go party and go clubbing. Funnily enough, like people, people have only been clubbing late into the night for not that long. <laughs> and yet you don't really think about it, especially when you've been brought up into that, into that culture. But yeah, it was actually, you know, not that long ago, a point where people would be, it would be, it would be a yardstick how much sleep could you survive without? Mm. And it's amazing how in the past 10 or so years, people start to realize the more and more we've researched it, just what happens if you decide to go down that route, demolishes your immune system, it absolutely kills your productivity, it causes you to fall into conflict because your emotional regulations all over the place, your hormone regulations poor, so you end up eating poorly, that spikes your blood sugar, so you feel even worse. 
And we are actually designed to sleep twice. So we're polyphasic creatures. We're designed to sleep through the night, but then also in the afternoon. Mm. So it's like napping. Yeah. So we've lost that through the industrial revolution in many ways. Because as soon as you start nursery or kindergarten or school, you don't have a nap anymore. Mm. And you go to work. There's not a capacity for that. And that's why we have the afternoon all of a sudden after dinner, like in the, in the meeting room, like dipping our heads, like <laughs> can't concentrate. Because actually, we're biologically wired to sleep then. And that's why, I mean, the Romans were aware of that. They called it sexta, the sixth hour. And it still exists in Southern Europe as the siesta, mm. where mm. they close all the businesses and shops in the heat, mid, mid, midday heat and go and have a nap for two hours and then come back again and work till a bit later. And yet, we decided to wash that out of our culture. So we're always going to have the challenge of trying to focus and keep our attention through that. But yeah, in the past 10 years, all of a sudden people started to realize sleep is the fundamental driver of health and performance. As soon as you take it away, things start to fall apart and pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, maybe we can uh, build some kind of campaign to bring napping back. I think a lot of people, especially my audience, the 20 year olds would love to bring napping back. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I've seen some corporate organizations put in like the nap pods and stuff, and maybe they're onto something there in terms of driving productivity. But I just can't see, especially here in the States, uh, how corporate things have gotten us moved towards a world where we take a two-hour break in the middle of the day and then come back to things I just, I just i'm not sure if it could it could work out but i like the thought of at least getting more sleep and you've mentioned some of the negative effects of like what a sleep debt can do if you you know if you're looking at four to five hours uh every single day maybe some of the positives what does a full night's rest bring to you like why why should someone really want to focus on this and how does it set you up for success the next day yeah, so in, in so many ways, we have our four different stages of sleep and they all regulate and restore different parts. So if we look at our deepest stage of sleep, the stage four, that comes very early in the night in its majority. And that's physical restoration. So we, we've evolved for if we do get suddenly woken up by predators in the middle of the night, at least our bodies will be recovered enough to run away. Mm. So we have that really deep period and that's a big thing about if you take sleeping pills, more sleeping pills, wipe that stage out. You mm. Don't get that actual stage for physical restoration, which is why people who take sleeping pills long-term quite often find the bodies literally fall apart and you're not, you're having a biologically induced sleep, not naturally induced sleep. Now, what kind of happens when our other stage is, is the closer we go towards our REM. So we have our sleep cycles, roughly 90 minutes, people have different cycles. And those change as we get older and our requirements change. You'll notice that babies sleep a certain way. The chronotype is the chronotype of a baby. They go to bed quite early, wake up really early, wake up a few times in the night just to uh, tell you they're hungry. But then you get to a kid and you've got a relatively sensible cycle. You go to bed quite early. You get up a little bit earlier than adults do. Then generally run around and wake up the adults. Um, but then you shift all the way from that earlier chronotype as a young child. 
all the way to being a late teenager and you want to go to bed at two in the morning and get up mm-hmm. at 11 and people are trying to peel you up for <laughs> peel you up for college and you're like no don't take me <laughs> and then and then by the time you know you're 2021 20, you actually fall into your genetic chronotype which for some people is an early riser for some people is a bit of a night owl and experimented to find where that is by playing about with your bedtime and starting to look up, depending on when you go to bed, when do you wake up naturally? Mm. I've found working back from that, realizing that you, you know you go through your five sleep cycles in 90 minutes and add that up. Obviously, nowadays we've got access to data where we can look at that a bit more. But you want to roughly be getting around, I mean, the, the old eight hours sleep comes from looking at adenosine which is a byproduct of our bodies telling us that we're tired. So our bodies over the course of a day creates adenosine in our brain that then goes into receptors to tell us, okay, so you're getting a bit more tired, which is why you gradually fatigue over a day. When you drink caffeine, caffeine jumps into those receptors and blocks them. Mm. So caffeine doesn't actually give you energy. It masks your fatigue. And your body doesn't realize it's as tired as it is because the adenosine can't get in. So in, in so many ways, that's how you then start to look at those elements. Uh, but yeah, that, those eight hours of sleep, it does so much. It cleans your brain, literally flushes out all the toxins during that period of sleep. And there's so many other things. There's not a biological or neurological process that sleep doesn't affect in some way which is why it's just so vital. And yet, like so many things that we just do, like breathing, we never actually think about it. And quite often, it's the first thing for an hour to go off. And I think the best example to use to really shock people to understand is, firstly, if you sleep four hours a night, the following day, your blood sugar, your insulin sensitivity will be that of a pre-diabetic. So you'll measure as pre-diabetic after one night's poor sleep. And secondly, when they move the clocks back and forward, like they quite often do in, in a lot of countries across the world, yep. when we lose that hour's sleep, suddenly heart attack, strokes, and serious disease, it goes up on that day significantly. Mm. Car accidents go up, workplace conflicts goes up. If you look at it, when we suddenly gain an hour, those all go down. Mm. That's, that's interesting. just off one hour's sleep. And it's mm. really, really big because you can't do experiments like that on people and take billions of people switching times and losing sleep. But that's one big worldwide experiment that just shows the difference in one hour's sleep. Yeah, that's 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 super interesting. Now I'm you got me curious. I'm gonna go and look at some of that research on that. You mentioned caffeine and uh, for my target target audience, the the twenty something caffeine and alcohol. I'm assuming are probably going to be in conflict and battle a lot of sleep optimization. So let's tackle each one. So what, uh, what could be some broad rules that people could consider putting around caffeine? Um, so a big one I used is to have a curfew. So caffeine has a half-life, like all chemical substances. And it's half-life, it's, a, it's about six hours. So if you drink a cup of coffee and it's got 200 milligrams caffeine in, after six hours, you'll still have 100 milligrams in your body. So it's understanding that actually the closer 
you insert caffeine towards your bedtime, the more you're going to struggle because your body doesn't think it's tired. Yeah. And you're confusing yourself. So my actual rules with my clients is no caffeine after 2 p.m. Okay. And that gives your body a chance to break it all down and metabolize it all the way so that when you go to bed, all your adenosine in your brain can go right, bang, straight into the receptors, and suddenly you feel that fatigue, you feel that tired. And that signals a lot of other body processes to say, you know what, time to get restful. Mm. It's time to reduce our body temperature, get down. It works in conjunction with melatonin as well, which is why people tell you to avoid the blue light yep. and to actually make sure that you get a good amount of light during the day and then start to try and wind down at night. So your melatonin production, because that also, they all, they all connect together to tell you it's time to go to sleep. And we can easily jack ourselves up to the point where our body doesn't think it's ready. And it doesn't matter how much you want it to, it's not going to go because the chemicals are saying, well, it's still three o'clock in our head. Mm -hmm. So yeah, caffeine. Okay. So, caffe so caffeine curfew at 2 p.m. I, I really like that general rule. It's something I try to follow as well. Sometimes by, by noon, I like to be off, off of caffeine, but you know, sometimes too, depending on when I take my first cup. What about alcohol? I mean, you already mentioned uh, the 20 something loves to go out clubbing late at night. What are some rules? You know, I, I don't want to tell people they can't go out. I, I, uh, I mean, I think most health experts would probably shy you away from binge drinking or even drinking alcohol in general. But what uh, specifically to sleep optimization, what could we be thinking about in terms of alcohol consumption and some rules that we could put around that? Yeah, so I mean, in, in, a, in a similar way, my line of work, people have to go and enjoy their lives. Indulge in society's fun, especially in your 20s. Mm -hmm. You're more resilient to do it. So that, again, is something, as soon as, as soon as you take something with such strictness and such rigidity, what you actually do is you flood the banks of fun, mm -hmm. and then you don't have any fun anymore. You just become like a little robot. And that's not that's no way to that's no way to live. Uh, but the thing with alcohol is, a lot of people, and as they get older, they think, oh yeah, it's great to have a nightcap, you know, it helps me get to sleep. What it actually does is it interrupts your sleep cycles, so it reduces your sleep quality. So again, with alcohol, what we say is try to have your last consumption of alcohol four hours before you go to bed. And if you're on a night out then it probably makes a bit more sense to drink a little bit more at the start, a little bit less towards the end. Mm. And it's just starting to realize that you don't need to have those extra few drinks that tip you over the edge and get you to the point where you, you really it's time to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, if you do that, you'll actually feel so much better the next day, even though you're probably likely to be underslept anyway. And it's like, it's just, just realizing that actually, Alcohol is, is it's one of those things, in moderation, it's not an issue. Mm -hmm. And as part, as part of, you know, a whole daily life, like I, I have one or two units a week. That's it. That's enough for me. Mm. It's, it's, and it's, again, it's something that during lockdown, I've not really done because I, I like to do it socially. Like for hundreds and thousands of years, people have drunk alcohol as a social lubricant. All of a sudden, after a few drinks, you're just a bit more jolly. <laughs> your guards down a little bit. You, you'll go and talk to strangers and do all sorts of crazy things. And to be honest, when you're in your 20s, that's what you've got to be doing. Yep. <laughs> got to be, be crazy.
crazy. You've got to have that dawn party and watch people who you thought were all sensible and clever get drunk and fall on the floor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in, in so many ways, it's like, just look to have your, just look, look to have your last drink three to four hours before you go to bed. Okay. It won't disrupt your sleep cycles. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. And you mentioned, uh, you know, people four or five hours before they go or four hours before they, they uh, are going to go to sleep, they're going to go home. Um, and let's talk about the home a little bit, because I think that is the easiest uh, low hanging fruit to go for opti- optimizing sleep. In my opinion, I did a few things that changed things around that really cost nothing, but I'd love to hear uh, some some quick tips or or strategies people could do to redesign the bedroom to optimize their sleep. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you spend a third of your life in your sleep environment. So actually you spend more time than you do in your car, hmm. more time than you do in your office, more time you do in your living room. It's just like, it's, it's the place where we spend the most time. And so often people are like, I don't want to buy that thousand dollar mattress. It's like you're gonna you're gonna spend ten years on that thousand dollar mattress. Wow! Look at the cost per day to have something that supports your back and your neck while you lie there for eight hours, unconscious. So you know, actually look and think, I'm gonna invest in a decent bed. Find a mattress that supports my you know posture and my body shape, a pillow that actually supports my head and my neck, and start to look. You want your bedroom environment to be so dark that you can't see your hands in front of your face Mm. because our skin's got light sensors in. So what actually happens is even though you think, ah, it's fine, your skin's picking up the light and stopping your melatonin production. Mm. So really, we've got to try and get it dark. You know, blackout curtains, perfect for that. Look at devices in your room, like shiny alarm clocks and all sorts of things charging here and there. Just get them out of there. Your bedroom should be for sleep and sex and storming mm. some claws, and that's about it. That's what you should design it around. So you should be looking at your bedding and making sure that temperature-wise it works for you. So the process of falling asleep means our core body temperature drops by a few degrees. That's what knocks us into a night's sleep. If you're dressed in pyjamas like an Arctic hunter, <laughs> you, you go, you're going to sweat. Your body's going to start to sweat to try and regulate its temperature. That's not comfortable. You woke up in the middle of the night, you know, sopping wet because you're sweating. means you've got too many layers on or your bedding's too thick for the conditions. Or your thermostat's turned up too high. In the same way, if you wake up in the middle of the night absolutely freezing, it's because your temperature's too low Mm. and your body's desperately trying to fight to keep it back up. What you've got to do is play about with your thermostat. You've got that on your wall. It's an experiment half a degree up, half a degree down. How did I sleep? Warm. Mm. And again, the outside temperature means that you might, over the course of a year, have to just change that ever so slightly. Look at your pyjamas. What's comfortable? Some people feel really comfortable sleeping naked. Some people need the pyjamas. It's really individual, which is why you need to start digging down and experimenting. What works for you? I mean, again, sometimes people need socks. Because that's the one place where our body's like, whoa, temperature's going funny here. And it's the one place where, for some people, it really helps with your temperature regulation. Because if your regulation is, when it's fighting, it can knock you out of sleep at the top of your REM cycle. And that's why you, you, know, you wake up and you're like, oh, remembering your dreams. Because, again, you're right at the top of that cycle and something's knocked you out, that disturbance. 
And for some people, they want it to be absolutely silent. Some people want a bit of white noise in the background just to help them get off. But it's again, it's so much design your environment to sleep in. Don't have those stressful bills on the side, things that are going to make you attached to things other than sleeping. Just make it a sanctuary, cool, calm, dark, mm. and you'll sleep so much better. Don't phone, don't charge your phone by the side of your bed. It'll be the first thing you look at in the morning, last thing before you go to sleep. Research by the mobile phone companies themselves show if you charge your phone by the side of your bed, and it's the last thing you look at, it takes you statistically longer to get to sleep and your sleep quality is less. And they funded that research themselves. Is that confident you'll still probably do it? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, and yeah, that, that was a big trigger for me. I set my phone on the other side of the room. First, I use it as an alarm clock. So the fact that I have to get out of bed, walk across my room and turn my alarm clock off, almost to a 98% success rate gets me moving that day versus just rolling over, hitting my alarm. You know, sometimes I'm awake and I pull my phone open. I used to just scroll social media for 20 minutes. It was just a, a time suck from probably the most productive hours of my day itself. So redesigning that environment a lot really helped. And then you're right, getting rid of all of the external lights, you know, the, uh, the, you know, my modem that was had a little bit of light or the things that had to stay in my room, like the fire alarm, I just put a little bit of um, electrical tape over the, the light itself to make sure that all the light I could possibly get out um, was out of the room. But I love the fact that you that you know, the big key driver here was um, the bedrooms really only for two things. And you said sleep and sex. And what's mentally, you know, how does mentally compartmentalizing those two things for the bedroom? How, how does that, you know, for the people that maybe work in, in their bed, you know, bring their laptop into their bed, you mentioned the bills by the side of their bed. What is, what is our brain or our mental, our mentalness telling us about that might be disrupting our sleep? Yeah. So, I mean, so many sleep problems and so many sleep issues are caused by anxiety and people's brains were racing still. So we've got to kind of learn to gradually connect to tasks and disconnect to them throughout the day. And I teach a lot of that in the workplace about honoring our ultradian rhythms, which run between 60 to 90 minutes. We can do a really good session of deep work. Then we need to disconnect and not be bombarded with stimulation while we gradually settle down to reconnect to the next task. And that's why meditation in the morning helps you sleep in the evening. And mm. when the American Sleep Society looks at that, they realize that, whoa, these people that meditate in the morning, why are they so good at falling asleep? And why is the sleep quality better? The reason why is because when you meditate, you're switching off and disconnecting. And people that can use that same ability at bedtime. And it's also using the fact that you're able to work deeply and then disconnect to actually build that into your day so that when you go to bed, you can flick that off switch in your mind. And that takes practice. You can only build that up by meditating, by honoring your body's rhythms, practicing it, and suddenly you become better and better over time. But in terms of having stuff in your sleep environment that's not beneficial to sleep, it just triggers you, triggers thoughts and feelings, triggers behaviors and actions. And if suddenly your bedroom's full of clutter, you don't realize, but the environmental stress of all that stuff being there, it's there. You might have your eyes closed, but still in your mind, it's just there all around you. You're surrounded by things that are not conducive to sleep. And 
you've got to remember that we as we as animals you've got to be a good human at the end of the day and it's only in very very recent times that we were suddenly in some urban environment in a man-made building surrounded by things we spent most of our time sleeping under some trees and a makeshift cover we had barely any possessions for you know 230,000 years that's how, how we've existed and all of a sudden we decided we need these little boxes and lots of things in and it's like well at the end of the day if you want if you want to be healthy and happy be a good human and just actually look to honor the evolutionary species we are because we haven't changed we're exactly the same human being that we were a hundred thousand years ago like evolution doesn't move that fast and we move incredibly fast with our technological evolution but only in the past 15 years have we had this you know magnanimous shiny light object that we all carry around that's called a smartphone that and that's the reason why sleep's gone from eight hours to 6.7 hours because suddenly we've got something that can burn our eyes out that we carry around with us 24 hours a day something that people are happy to wake up in the middle of the night and look at and be like oh that's good what's happening <laughs> and, and it's like whoa whoa we don't even embrace boredom anymore because we stand mm. in queue and we just get it out and they're built to take and exploit our psychological hooks and get us habit formed into using them because that's how they make the money. It's not great for sleep. It's not great for a sleep environment. And again, in so many ways, when, when you're looking at sleep and how it's beneficial to you, when you start to value it, you start to be more purposeful. When you have a reason to get up in the morning, you're aligned to your purpose. You know what your missions are. You know what you're doing. Sleep suddenly becomes more valuable because a lot of people value their entertainment and watching, you know, a whole series on Netflix instead of going to bed. But if you value entertainment more than your purpose, more than your mission, then what's the incentive to go to bed? You, you'll just roll in whenever you're ready. And mm. it's about really getting powerful on that and realizing that if you want to make a change in the world, you can't do it if you're half asleep. Man, there's people who are so half asleep, they don't realize they're half asleep anymore. They spent the last 10 years being half asleep wow. and they're so dulled. You don't even, that's, how, that's how they think life is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, and I, I don't want to get too deep into meditation here because I think you and I could probably do an entire show just on meditation. Um, but as an elementary meditator, I, you know, I'm very new to it and I still haven't really figured out my rhythm. If you were to quickly give instruction to somebody that's new to meditation, you know, how could someone start a meditation practice? Yeah, so, I mean, it's so simple and different, different types of meditation resonate with different people. So the first thing I can say is there's lots of apps out there which will give you a taste of different types of meditation. Try them. See what works for you. But don't go into meditation expecting that, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do anything for you. Don't go into it with a goal of suddenly being able to, you know, transcend and fly because it's really, it's a skill that you've probably not practiced before. Having to anchor into your breath or a mantra or silence or some kind of prayer or visualization. And these are not things that we've practiced. They don't teach us these things at school. So when you first do it, you're going to jump into almost every thought that comes through your head. That's how society is now, and that's how we've started to become. So don't go into it expecting that you're going to get this amazing clarity. 
start it like it's a tiny little habit like you're a baby learning to walk don't get dis disheartened when you keep jumping into the park because that's gonna happen mm. and yet over time what happens is you don't really see you think you're suddenly going to be able to you know get clarity like a buddhist monk it doesn't really work like that but what happens is you start to be able to concentrate more powerfully focus more on tasks and suddenly you're able to anchor into how you feel and be a bit more mindful in your life and again that's about going out there and trying really simple things like just sitting there and listening to your breath listening to yourself breathing just feeling it for chest going up chest going down stomach going out stomach coming in mm. and just just live in the moment just start to watch the thoughts go by Almost imagine you were stood by the highway and your thoughts are all the vehicles moving past. And just let them go. And you will jump in. Mm. Just how we are. We're interested. We're inquisitive. We want to know. But yeah, there's, there's so much out there. Just start. Just try. Only a few minutes a day. But over time, it builds up like any kind of skill. What you don't realize is that going to the gym for our body, meditation is a bit like training for the mind. There's a lot of things that you work, because you don't do it every day, your mind's not very strong. It's picking up that tiny little weight and going, oh, this is heavy. And yet you train it just for a few minutes every day and you'll gradually get stronger and get stronger. And when you combine all those things together, you can get a pretty strong brain. Your brain will literally look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in your head. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Lee, it was a pleasure. As we conclude this episode, if people want to connect with you, if they resonated with something you said, if they want to learn a little bit more about your coaching business, where can people find you? Uh, so people can find me at essentialize.co.uk, at leechambers.org, and on Instagram at essentialize.coach. Awesome. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes as well. Lee, my final question for you is looking back, what advice would you give your, you know, what advice do you wish you would have gave your 20 year old self? Yeah. So the advice that I would have given is don't worry, go out there, fail some more, have some more fun and just, just let it be. Mm. Because again, like so many people, I was, I was, I was too busy thinking, what was I going to do instead of going out and just doing it and finding out for myself. Mm. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Lee. It's been a pleasure learning about your story of waking up and how that led to you sleeping better. I just love that irony of our story arc here. It was a pleasure. You will probably be back on the show. I think we're going to have to dive into nutrition and, and movement at some point in time. So for the audience, this will not be the last that you hear of Lee Chambers. But as of right now, Lee, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If this episode brought value to you, share it with a friend and show love on social. You can tag me at Justin Lee Peters. The link to the show notes is in the episode description and we'll include all the resources we talked about today. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time in the sandbox.